welcome to Under the Teen Fluence, the show where we get advice to teens based on our past experiences. My name is Leslie and I'll be your host today. With me, I have Liz, Ginny, and Yasmin, and we're the prevention team from NCADD San Fernando Valley. Today, we have a special guest. He is a counselor from our organization. I'll give him a moment to introduce himself. Hi there. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I, uh, I'm grateful to be here today. My name is Derek. I am the counselor at NCDD Supervisor Counseling Services here in Van Nuys. And uh, yeah, thanks again for having me. Thank you. We are very thankful for having Derek join us on today's podcast because September is National Alcohol and Drug Addiction Recovery Month. For those who are unsure what it means or what it is, that's okay because we're all here to learn. National Recovery Month emphasizes that recovery is possible for everyone for every person, for every family, and every community. National Recovery Month started in 1989, and it is a national observance that is held every September to promote and support new evidence-based treatment and recovery practices. The importance of treatment and how treatment can save a life and help people with substance use disorders to recover from addiction. Treatment and recovery make it possible for individuals, families, and communities to heal and thrive. So I would like to start the conversation by asking Derek, what inspired you to become a substance abuse counselor and how long have you been working in this field? Okay, well, thank you for that question. I'll be honest, when it comes to what inspired me, it was my conscious decision to see where I was going in life and knowing that there was an actual possibility to live a life worth living. We all had this one chance of this one life to live and I think we all should deserve and we all do deserve and should give ourselves a chance to really in involve ourselves in this one chance that we have to live on this on this earth and knowing that recovery entered in my life and what it has done for me i cannot keep that to myself i was not able to hold that in oh my god look what's happened in my life my life is so beautiful now and just hold on to it no it needed to be passed on that is part of recovery because if we hold it to ourselves how are others going to get better and in order for others to see the miracle of what recovery has to offer it has to be educated to them it has to be expressed to them and there's you know a counselor like myself and all my other recovery soldiers that are practicing the practice of counseling that is our, our job and our purpose on this world is to pass on what was freely given to us one day which is recovering and counseling with that being said, can you share a success story from your experience as a counselor that highlights the positive impact of recovery programs? Yeah, um, it's it's it starts off as a sad story, but you know it is one of the ones that I will never forget. Um, we have a um, a gentleman who came to us on his own with his family, and he was pleading for his life because he knew that he was using a substance called fentanyl that is going around that was really going to take him out. And he showed up one day um, in the middle of his treatment, meaning he was here for a while, and he showed up with his family after leaving the hospital after ODing down the street from our facility, and he had to get resuscitated by his teenage brother who was still in high school had to resuscitate him having the family come down with the, the client right after leaving the hospital after an overdose to share that experience is another form of what we are doing offers a purpose of safety security and more education which is so much needed in recovery to have this family come down and ask for our our experience of what to do next, that just shows that we are leading to navigate families and people who are struggling into the right direction. 
And that in itself, I will never forget that moment. And that happened most recently, unfortunately. Um, how is the young man doing? We do not know yet. We are still reaching out and trying to re-encourage him in. But just knowing that the family knew where to go and ask for extra support, that right there shows that we are on the right path of doing what we need to do for the community and for our, our, our people out here, especially our youngsters, especially with what's going on. You know, knowing that we are a safe haven for them to come and just ask for support, what to do next, because some people are lost. Family members are lost and they don't know what to do. So that's really what is that's what has encouraged me most recently. And that's something I'll probably never forget. And I'm grateful to say a real quick side note here at NCDD, I did create the family group. I do a family group every Thursday night and I've had I've had the experience to honestly, I've had it for about a year and we have four solid clients that show up with their mothers and some show up with their sisters. I've gone through holidays with these families. I've gone through the death of some of their loved ones. Some of them have gotten evicted from their places. And as a family unit and as a group unit, we have gone through this together. Because And this, this is me with clients and their family members I've known for over a year. And that's just a beautiful thing. Once again, that's another example of they know where to go and just share dialogue and share things about themselves to get out of themselves and really see life for what it is, which is communication and togetherness and love. And that is really what can conquer addiction because addiction equals isolation where recovery equals connection. I was going to ask, what are some common misconceptions about addiction and recovery that you encounter and how can you address them during national recovery? Oh, especially with the young, with the young community. Sobriety, not using substances equals boring. No. How about this? You're going to have more money in your pocket, number one. You're going to know where you woke up every day, number two. You're not going to lose respect from your loved ones, number three. And number four, you might stay alive. You know what I mean? I know a lot of youngsters or just people in even... 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever age range, socioeconomic status you're in, drugs are going to kill me. Come on, that's for those other people, you know. But honestly, the misconception with addiction and recovery is that your life is going to be over. And it's it's hard to shake somebody. Words are easier than actions, you know, uh, easier said than done. But like you cannot really paint a picture of how much your life can blossom and open up in sobriety unless you actually give it a shot. So that's a stigma, a misconception, how addiction, uh, sobriety equals boring. But, you know, that's one that, you know, I guess, you know, a good, sometimes us counselors, we're salesmen and we're trying to convince them in our product, but we're not here to sell you into staying, but we're here to, you know, just remind you stay connected. Just like any sales, you know, marketing place, like stay, stay with us. You know, they try to keep you in as a customer, but all we do is just keep inviting you back. Don't leave until the miracle happens. And some people aren't patient enough to wait. So addiction, I mean, recovery equals boring. That is a misconception that is, it's, it's hard to get past. With that being said, how can we reduce the stigma surrounding addiction and recovery? You know, both on a personal and a societal level. 100. Oh, yeah. No, 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 definitely. Like events. And it's because like what you guys do, you know, what a prevention team does, you guys show, you know, how it could be fun. People slap their smiles going around when you guys are spreading your word of how to do the prevention techniques of addiction. Recovery is a program that is attraction rather than promotion. So if you are involved every now and then with any maybe events or go into a room or a meeting in a group and you see people laughing and smiling, yeah, you're going to hate on that at first. You're going to be like, uh-uh, who do you think you are? But low-key, internally, you're going to be like, I want that. It's a program of attraction rather than promotion. 
So basically, you you need to get out of that uncomfortable bubble because we have to get uncomfortable to start getting comfortable with it. <laughs> so, you know, you got to want it at first. And then when you see what it looks like, you're going to want more of it if you really want to start finding stability, peace, happiness. I love that. We have to get uncomfortable to get comfortable. With that being said, what advice do, uh, would you give someone who is hesitant to seek help for their addiction during National Recovery or at any time? You need to keep asking yourself and play the tape back. What am I facing if this continues? Honestly, there it's called ambivalence. There's ambivalence in so many people in our program and in early recovery. Ambivalent is like, yeah, I do need it because they're saying I do, but do I really? But you need to ask yourself, where are you going to end up in the next three years, in the next five years? And do you want to live? If you if your answer is yes, I want to live, then honestly, surrender is the only way to go. And surrender is a different thing for everybody. But what surrender really means is learning how to live life on life's terms and really start feeling feelings you never felt before start feeling feelings you haven't probably felt in a decade and you're going to see that the rewards are going to be so uplifting you're going to want more of it you know life gratitude happiness can be your new addiction but people that are hesitant in it my my, my takeaway from that is ask them do you want to live if so do you want to be at peace if so are you at peace being dependent on a substance to get you through the day? If the answer is no, then start that recovery because it's possible. How would someone reach out to NCADD for their treatment services if they don't know already? For their treatment services, it's a phone call away. They will they will speak with somebody on that first, second, third ring, fourth at the most, but they will <laughs> somebody, and they will ask you a series of questions and honestly verbally welcome you in and make an appointment right there on the spot. You will receive an appointment to come in and speak with the counselor and be screened in person, and you will be guided through the process of what we have to offer in our services. That phone number is 818-997-0414. For anybody out there who might be interested in- Please, one phone call away. <laughs> one phone call away, ask for Derek. So along with NCADD, there are other resources available for teens and adults, such as- uh, we have Alateen, which is a section of Al-Anon. So Alateen meetings are for young people ages 13 to 18 who have been affected by someone else's drinking. You can find that information online just by doing a quick Alateen Google search. And then we also have the SAMHSA National Helpline, which is 1-800-662-4357. And it's also known as a treatment referral routing service. Um, it is confidential free and it's 24 hours a day. And it's also provided for English and Spanish for individuals and family members facing mental or substance use disorders. And also, uh, don't forget, you have AA Central Office. You will have volunteers who will pick up the phone 24 hours a day. They are volunteers, probably guided there from their sponsor to uh, sit on the computer and find you meetings in your local area for Alcoholics Anonymous. For youngsters who are looking for teen meetings, any type of genre type of meetings, whether it's LGBT, men's meetings, meetings for youngsters, they will find exactly what you are looking for in what area, what time to the demographics that you're looking for. And that is a central office with the phone number of 818-988- 3001. You will have a live volunteer pick up and help you. I want to track back a little and talk about drug education um, just because it is something that is important and we should all be aware about. I want to start off by asking y'all 
Um, why is drug education in schools and at home very important? I want to say that I think it's important that it starts at home. A lot of parents always go to schools and say, well, why doesn't no one talk to my kid about, you know, vaping going on? And to be honest, it does start at home. I think a lot of young children, they see they, they see things in the media or they pick it up from their own, like parents, family members, friends that they know. And so, you know, young children are very heavily influenced by things that they see around them. So I think if a parent were to take that upon themselves and start that conversation at home, then we wouldn't rely so much at schools. But not to say that schools are not a great spot for drug education, because, you know, here at NCADD with prevention, we do drug education in schools when allowed. And we um, we do uh, talk to youth about um, different things like that. No. Yeah, I definitely agree. But on the other spectrum with the parents on on a quick personal note, when my mom when my mother found out what I was doing and how heavy it got right under her nose. When I say under her nose, we lived in the same household as a single mother for for over a decade and she had no idea of everything that i was doing because of the lack of education if parents are educated on the emotional status of what the substances are doing to their children they will see the signs and with those signs they will be able to start navigating to find some help because i don't want to call parents naive it's just lack of education and then also parents could get easily in denial my kid is not going through this. My kid is not going through this. But if you if you are educated, once again, on the signs and the symptoms that come with somebody who uses and the after effects of their cognitive behaviors and their emotion status, obviously, you know, most parents know their children. But if their children is acting off, yes, it's those teenage years. But also there's a little extra something going on. I mean, education is everything. Yes. So education for parents, really important. We do that here as well. We talk to our parent groups at our schools. We always teach them, um, you know, about certain drugs. And then we go off and we show them like signs and symptoms, risk factors, how to tell if your child may be using if they haven't, you know, confided in you. So it's all important. You know, drug education is important all around. I agree. Uh, what drug education classes or programs were available when y'all were in school? Do you all remember? Ever participate? I think we all make sure yeah. we're around. Yeah. Like I always see them like in front of the supermarkets and some They're actually people who are still within that partnership or that agency, really asking for donations. Because I know I think anybody that grew up in the seventy, I'm sorry, the eighties or nineties or even early two thousands knows about there, and there's an emotional attachment to there. But basically, that's all. That's all I remember. We had is the Dare program and Impact. Impact program was in some of the inner city schools, but that was when you've already been you've already been associated with a substance in your schooling. And so the impact program was kind of like a heavy course education because you are already known to be using substances. Mm-hmm. Impact. I'm not sure if it's still around, but it was definitely around in the early 2000s in mm-hmm. most uh, junior high and high schools. I remember there being at the schools, but it wasn't necessarily like I wasn't participating in it. It wasn't towards me. It was just there. Um, and then I don't really remember any other drug education programs within their schools. And then at, my parents at home really didn't talk to me about drugs. It was just more like, don't do it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's also an issue in most um, 
common households because most parents don't want to talk to their kids about drugs because they don't want them to know about it. They don't want them to start looking and experimenting because now they've yeah. heard about it. And there's still so much issue with that. Point. I was going to say it's another one of those uncomfortable conversations that the parents don't want to have. Yep. But it's also, you got to look at it as in not denial, but there's such a, a stigma to it, especially with depending on what culture you're growing up in. You know, it's a cultural based thing. In some cultures, it is a huge no-no. So even thinking about your child has the capability to even think of wanting to use a substance. What that shows is to the parent, unfortunately, it shows a failure in in parents. Like the parent themselves feel like they failed in a way. So some of them don't even have that emotional capacity to kind of even maybe possibly admit that their child needs to use substances because something is going on with their family. So a lot of parents don't even really want to bring up the subject because they're so in denial because if their child did use, then that means kind of a failure aspect for the parent. And that's kind of, you know, we see that a lot. We see it a lot with mothers and fathers and their addicted children, even, um, you know, within my family group. I don't know how many parents I've had look into the camera and start crying, be like, where did I go wrong? Where did I go wrong? When really, you know, we don't put the blame on anybody, but there is a little speck of there was a lack of education on your part. There was a lack of education with you not knowing why maybe you feel like your your son or your daughter needed to turn to alter their reality. Because that's what substances do. They alter your reality because your reality at the time is too hard to live in. You got to ask yourself why. Maybe it starts at home. I kind of want to piggyback off what Leslie was asking. Um, you know how you just said that some parents are in denial about their uh, children using? What What would you tell the parents that are like, no, they're way too young to know about what drugs are right now? Like at what age, I guess, would you think it's appropriate to start having these uncomfortable conversations with your children? At what age specifically? Yeah. I, or what know. age do you think no, it, yeah. it's best to be discussed? Yeah. Because you as a counselor, I mean, you see you see these people come through and I'm sure they tell you their stories about, you know, what age yeah. they may have started. Yeah. Yeah. Saying that, oh, where did I go wrong? Well, it's like, well, when did you when did you think you should start talking to your children? Me, I, I'm not a father yet, but I have my two nieces who are like my daughters, exactly. I, you know, and one is 12 years old. And definitely I feel like she should have started knowing about this at least two years ago. So I'm around the age of 10 because at 12 is when you really start building, trying to build that identity of who you are with the friends that you're starting to meet. And there's going to be some vaping or something going on in that inner circle at the age of 12. So if it really starts at the age of 10, I want to say, because I also have another niece at the age of 10 and she is smart. She sees what goes on with these preteens mm -hmm. and she tells me, and she's, she's more of a magnet program kind of nerd. So she's more of like, <laughs> I see that. I don't like what I see with the right. bigger kids. Yeah. And she's at the age of 10. So that's where the pre prevention techniques need to start being developed. Yes. That's where they need to start being developed because in a year or two, their peers are going to start experimenting. And when they've been led up to what prevention really means and what the consequences are to indulge in those substances, whether it's tobacco, nicotine, or whatever substances those preteens are using, they're going to know to say no at that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you for, I never really thought of like what age and really I have a 10 year old niece. I have a 12 and a 10. The 12 is she's starting to, yeah. And the 10 year old, she's, she knows mm -hmm. what it all is. She knows. So you don't want to treat them like they're naive. Like they don't know. They know, especially with the social media going on, their tablets, their YouTube, they know what's happening, you know, but if they start hearing what can happen if they indulge in it, 
And once again, it all starts with what's going on at home. Not to put the blame on any parents, but that education needs to really be shoved into parents. They need to know and what are the warning signs and how they can deviate from their child needing to alter their reality in a different form which is with their peers and what their peers are doing, because you can have the most perfect home, but your your children's peer, your children's best friend cannot have the most perfect home. And they're the ones who need to alter their mind with maybe starting out with the vapes. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a cycle. It's, it's a ripple effect. That being said, I want to open this question to the group. How does social media influence teens' perceptions of drug and alcohol use? And what can teens do to navigate these influences responsibly? I think we all know that social media does heavily influence and that there are so many things on social media that, you know, is very questionable or alarming, especially to uh, really young minds. The social media is getting, it's going to get way beyond any of our capacity of how we're able to control it. But if it starts at home, once again, of course, limit the content that your children supposed to see. But still, like you're, you're dealing with growing minds trying to find their own identity and their authentic self at that time, which is not really authentic. It is altered by what they see. You know, come on, we were all teens at once and we didn't even know who the heck we were at the time. But, you know, what social media shows is like the glorified realm of like being cools associated with the beer in your head, having a vape while you're talking. Look how cool you are. So I guess the only thing any parent or can really do in order to navigate these influences is kind of, you know, block certain content, mm-hmm. you know, and I know that's so Mickey Mouse to give any parent, but, you know, like there is no way to really stop what's going on. You cannot take your mobile devices or your tablets away from these teens. They're going to see what they see. But really, I'm going to say that again and start that word education. <laughs> if it is ingrained in your 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 youth's mind of what can happen if you alter your reality and you turn to this path to feel well every day or get by the day, it's going to, there's going to be that ripple effect. But like I said, social media is way beyond any of our realms. You know, there's nothing we can do to really stop what we see. It is an open platform for people's personality to be displayed. And how are we going to cut ourselves off from people's personality? We're all low key kind of have a cyber addiction to begin with, you know? So it's going to be out there. So I guess once again, just limit what limit the content that your youth can see, because right now, if they, if they are young, you have a right to limit the content. So I guess, yeah. yeah. I also think parents should also learn how to like um learn along the way with their children too. Yeah. So I feel like that's so important to understand that if you both are not educated mm-hmm. it, that's okay. Like no one has to be smarter than the other. The kid doesn't have to feel like, oh, I have to, you know, be the parent here and teach my mom. And no, I think it should I think they should learn together because back in the day when well, my brother's still um trying to recover Mm -hmm. but um when he first when we all first started realizing he had an addiction um my mom thankfully she just was like i guess this is just a learning process for all of us because she already went through addiction with my dad Mm -hmm. um so i think that really gave her a perspective of like well if it didn't work with him i have to do something else with your brother so i feel like i remember very clearly my mom was try she went to classes to be educated on like what addiction is and like how to maneuver it and i think i applaud her till this day for that just because it took a lot for her to be like i just have to accept it and i have to learn more about it because even my own brother didn't understand his own addiction he was like 14 15 years old so i think 
addiction is also something to learn about in general, understand what the meaning of addiction is. And also just in even navigating social media for teens, I don't really think there is an answer. It really is an open-ended question just because social media just really became a rise that I don't think there really has been any answers to that question yet, because I think we're all still learning the ways of social media and we're learning it together so that's the thing i love how you say learning together because that brings that togetherness that i was talking about earlier and it's very empowering when you're finding resources and 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 tips and education on addiction and recovery you're able to share it with your loved ones in order to help yourself help that loved one it's it's empowering if you're doing this as a team and what is a family a family is a team unit you know what i mean um, if I can piggyback real quick, my mother, and this was, my addiction really started creeping in 2000. So, oh my God, that's 23 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, 39. Wow. Well, that's when Google got pretty big in like 2000. She had to Google methamphetamines. What is addiction? And I remember she was showing me these papers and she was like, let's sit. And my mom's a Latina nanny, but like, you know, and she, she's very Americanized and very cool. Like she sat down and she wanted to read what addiction is because she's like, you know, something's going on with you. And it, exactly what you said brought me back to that memory. We sat down and we read what methamphetamine is and what addiction really means. And she took me to my first AA meeting. Of course, I got out of the car and ran because I was scared, uncomfortable. <laughs> I didn't go into it. But she started educating herself on how to be proactive with her baby boy who yeah. is turning into drugs. You know what I mean? And so I, that's why when I say the word education within family and working with your children, it is so crucial because I saw my mom, an immigrant, do that. Mm-hmm. She went straight seeking education because her baby boy, something was off with mm-hmm. him. And that's mm-hmm. why I feel like, you know, and it, it really instilled that within me now as a counselor, it instilled that confidence of knowing that if you are working with your family as a team to be educated on this battle of disease of addiction, it's going to come out the right way. You're going to find the answers and the resources that you need. That's why, hence this podcast, we're giving out the resources. We're giving out what is needed when anybody is struggling with addiction in their family or within themselves. Education is key. Resources are out there. You just got to actually go get it or accept it or let it come to you and accept it, you know? Yeah. I agree. And then going back on what both of y'all were saying, I feel like in terms of teens, like it's also very important when they are scrolling through social media to not take everything as a grain of salt, like really take the time and analyze this media. What is what are these advertisements trying to tell you? What are they leaving out? You know, just rather than just seeing it. Mm-hmm. It's also good to know that not everything we see on social media is real. Obviously, so many things are exaggerated faked, or people are just posting for clout or whatever. You know, videos are you know nothing is really real on social media. You know, we choose how we portray ourselves on social media. You know, so I'm just gonna leave it at that and just say. All right. I want to close off our podcast with the last question. How can we support a friend or a loved one who may be experiencing addiction? Ooh, thank you. I've answered this question a few times, different depending on the scenario. This is going to sound very generic and it's going to sound very simple, but it's one of the hardest things to do, especially if you are the loved one of the addicted person. The hurt, the resentment, the social PTSD, the lies you've experienced from this loved one. But the only thing you can really do is just be there. Because remember, addiction equals isolation. 
They love that isolation, but low key, they hate it. They hate it also at the same time. They love that isolation because that gives them the freedom to still be that travieso and do what they need to do without any judgment behind it. But that isolation and that 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 loneliness is what's keeping them in that realm. So once again, what you can do to support, it's free. You can just be there, be there without any judgment. Check in on them and just let them know. I'm just calling and check in on you just to remind you I love you. That really, really will bring back people into bring people back into reality and let them see that question that you asked in the beginning. If you wanted to show somebody or tell somebody what they will find in recovery, it is togetherness. It is love. They will find that love again and they will find that respect in human life in this one chance we have to live with people that we love. So I'll end it with that, like being there and letting them know you're there. That's really all we can do. Yeah, it's true. Great. And I want to say, always listen. Just be yes. like an active listener when yes. your friend is telling you about these things. And Listening without judgment. 100%. And once again, for anybody who's hearing this, it's easier said than done because you are going to be going with that past. You've heard it all. You've heard it all. You've heard them say that lip service over and over again. But that, that active listening it's really that sign of love and appreciation. And that is really what they are craving to begin with. Because any addict that is speaking to a professional and they say, what is one of your triggers? Nobody listens to me. They feel alone. They feel invisible. That's mm-hmm. just how, that's what. That's where the addiction takes people. They feel invisible and alone, which is why they keep altering the reality. Because their best friend, their lover, their companion is that substance. Because a human being isn't good enough or doesn't have any respect for them because they, they're not heard. They're not listened to. So, yeah, active listening is part of that just being there mm-hmm. in whatever way that they want you to be there for them. People also don't understand why addiction even happens in the first place. Mm-hmm. And everyone has their own reasons. It doesn't have to be the same reason. It It's their own reason. And if it's small to you, it doesn't matter because it's big to them. And obviously it's affecting them in a very big way for them to want to lead to using substances or addiction. Agreed. Agreed 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, with that being said, um, we also, I know we all have the best intentions for our loved ones and our friends who are experiencing addiction, but keep in mind that we can't force them into recovery until they are ready. Unfortunately, yes. they have to make that change. They want to want that change for themselves. Yep. Not only then when they are ready for that, they will succeed in recovery. Yeah, that is one of the most generic, uh, not, not what you said was generic, but that's, that's one of the most generic um, like sayings, they got to want it for themselves. That is one of the most genuine and most truthful facts, facts in somebody that you want them to get sober or if they want to get sober, they got to want it for themselves because if they do, they are their own cheerleader and they are the reason that they're going to live life on life's terms, let all the emotional baggage get to them without needing to alter their reality. Not the kid, not their children that they're getting sober for, not their job that they're getting sober for, not their boyfriend or girlfriend that wants them to get sober. They got to want it for themselves because they're the ones who are physically and emotionally going to stop themselves before they go and get the beer, before they go and call the, the hookup, before they go do, you know, the behavior, which is the using. But yes, the, that quote, they got to want it for themselves, is one of the earliest, earliest, truest facts of sobriety. 
Thank you, Derek. Thank you for coming and sharing your wisdom with us and in our audience. So I think we're going to close off our podcast. But just a reminder, National Recovery Month celebrates the gains made by those in recovery from substance use disorder and supporting those who are still struggling and providing people in recovery with the resources they need to live a full and healthy life. Thank you, guys. Thank we'll you. see you guys. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Derek. See you guys in the next podcast. Thank you. Bye. Bye.